listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 417, NFL Free Agency. Hello, Big Chillians, and welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. I should tell our listeners, it might sound a little different on, at least on my end, I'm holding a microphone as if I'm a stand-up comedian right now in a in a hotel room in Banff, Canada. So, <laughs> at least you're not holding it like a rapper. That could be if you were delivering delivering the podcast the entire time with the, the kind of rapper microphone pose. I think we'd think sort of differently of you. Well, I mean, you can't see me, so <laughs> maybe I am. <laughs> this is also true. This is going to be, that's the additional challenge for the recording. But, but now, how is it? How's Canada? Uh, Canada's great. It's good to be back. I, I have to say, there was a lot of restrictions to get in. And then once we got to the border, there was no checking or confirmation of any of said restrictions we had to have. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. It's as if you had just flown into another airport in another city in the United States. So, I mean, that was, it's, it's good because that, that would have probably just made it a longer or more annoying trip, but um, it seems to be that I think most things are dying down. So I think here in April, they're kind of ending all the travel restrictions anyway. So I feel as if the workers are probably just getting a head start on that <laughs> and just don't seem to care anymore. But yeah, it's been fun. It's a lot colder than Tucson, but really nice. So Banff's pretty, in a pretty amazing place. So I'm going to do some hiking and play some hockey on Lake Louise, one of the coolest places to play hockey i think in the world i guess the big question is how much of the uh ongoing interesting trades and free agent signings in the nfl is being covered up in canada at the moment they do really like the nfl up here so i mean we had a two-hour layover and we were sitting at the bar and you know sportsnet um had on well not a layover we were waiting for our bus but sportsnet had tons of the NFL trades and transactions and they were covering it pretty heavily. So I think the same question they're asking is what everyone in the NFL and the U S is asking is, is Watson Deshaun Watson, that is going to actually play for the Browns or are they going to take his allegations seriously? (laughs) I have a little bit, I'm not going to try and call this a hot take. I have a little bit of an issue with the way, the general public's reaction to the Deshaun Watson situation and the signing with the, the Browns. And I think I need to preface that by saying, obviously on previous episodes, we've discussed it and um, obviously his, his behavior is clearly unacceptable. I don't think that 22 women have colluded to make up ac- accusations against him. There's absolutely no reason to doubt that what he's being accused of, he's actually done even if there wasn't a significant, uh, sufficient enough threshold for for a criminal case to be pursued against him, but and and I'll also say I have no issue with anyone at any moment in time finding that something that they find to be morally or ethically questionable to be the moment that they have a kind of breaking point with something that they like, but. Based on the the sort of normal coverage, the general coverage of this Deshaun Watson situation and the level of criticism that is being leveled at the Browns, you would have thought that this is the first time any NFL player has ever abused a woman, broken the law, 
or done anything and then continued to have some sort of a career. I do not understand why this is the incident that is so awful for the general public to deal with. Now, I'm all in favor of people deciding, do you know what? No one should be playing in the NFL if they've been accused of abusing women or assaulting women. But the reality is, okay, you're going to stop Deshaun Watson potentially from playing for the Browns. And then we're still going to watch Kareem Hunt play for the Browns. We're still going to watch, you know, each player, each team probably has two or three players on it who have been accused of one thing or another. I I just find it very strange as to why this is the thing that we're not going to let happen. Yeah, no, I I agree with you completely on that. And I think, so here's the issue I have isn't necessarily with the Browns. I mean, I don't think it's a great look for the Browns. There are organizations that did come out and say, regardless of even if he's found innocent, we're still not going to take him. And the Browns were not one of those organizations. But at the same time, I think it's more of an issue of the NFL where over the past, let's say, 10 years, going back with Ray Rice, maybe about 10 years, might even be a little further. But since that Ray Rice incident, the NFL has stated it's going to take this seriously. And it's going to take all the domestic abuse and all the abuse against women from happening with players. It's going to take it very seriously. It's not going to have a tolerance for it. They want to set an example. But, I mean, we're 10 years later, and an example doesn't seem to be set. I mean, Deshaun Watson, like you said, has all these allegations, and and it's the NFL, I feel, that should be having some say or some crackdown here. And they, but, they are, they are, they're, they're pulling the, oh, well, no, nothing, uh, nothing in court so far, so we're just going to let whatever but, happens. I mean, happens. But, but, I mean, that does, I mean, that's, yes, would you like to see them be proactive? I don't know the realistic way in which they can be proactive. So he's he's had to, you know, the, the the criminal charges. The grand jury has decided do not meet a high enough threshold to pursue criminal charges against him. And then yet you expect the NFL to turn around and say, hey, you know what? Actually, the grand jury has got this one wrong, and we have done an independent investigation into this somehow, and have just determined that he should not play in the NFL anymore. I think in a sense the NFL has to put it decide, you know all right, we suspended you. Now we're in a position where you've been suspended for a full season, basically. And it appears there'll be no criminal charges. So now the ball's in the in the court of the individual teams to decide whether or not they want to employ you. But I don't know. And, and there's a backlash that's been after the Browns released their statement saying that they had looked into everything and assessed everything. And people have asked them, you know, kind of what is it you've possibly assessed? And and look, I think there's de- there's room for cynicism here. If Deshaun Watson was not very good at football, then Deshaun Watson's career would have been over and there would have been a lot of people within the NFL taking the moral high ground as to why his career was over. But the fact that the Browns think that Deshaun Watson could potentially help them win a Super Bowl, they're willing to overlook that. But again, it's not the first time and it won't be the last. So I don't know why... I I wish we would have we had a a true standard that we held to, but it just just seems as if everyone's got themselves really worked up over Deshaun Watson, and six months later, a very similar incident, probably even, I mean, not to sort of dismiss the, the what Deshaun Watson is accused of having done, but there will be people accused of doing far worse things when it comes to their treatment of women, 
undoubtedly over the next sort of six to 12 months whose NFL careers either continue or resume fairly swiftly. And that's the Edward Hewitt great outlook on life right there. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> just, I just I feel... predicting that something worse in, in the sexual abuse realm will happen in the NFL. Oh, look, look, what an optimistic I, view. <laughs> it's not exactly a bold prediction, is it? And and I also, it's so difficult to make that point because it's as if saying, hey, it's not that bad, which isn't what I'm saying. Or, hey, we let other things slide, so why don't we let that slide? Which is kind of what I'm saying, but I'm just confused as to why this is the the straw that broke the camel's back now if it is truly the straw that broke the camel's back and from now on players are going to be held accountable for all of their off the field behavior and it is going to seriously impact their contracts and their status within the nfl great i'm all in favor of that but i don't think it will so i think a lot of people are choosing as this moment this is their moment to grandstand and make a point as to oh how morally uh, offended they are by the NFL and by the Cleveland Browns and by Deshaun Watson and by the treatment of women. And six months later, I mean, let's let's call a spade a spade here, right? We've spent the last two years completely idolizing Kobe Bryant in since he died. I know I've made references to it on previous uh, podcasts, but this is a guy who, if you do any l- tiny little bit of research into what happened to him in Colorado, almost certainly raped someone. And and now for two years since he died, he is repeatedly the, being used as the sort of the shiny example of what the NBA stands for. And we've all forgotten because he died in in under tragic circumstances and because he was really, really good at basketball. And that's fine. No one's no one's asking the Rams why they're mentioning Kobe Bryant in their Super Bowl speeches after they win the Super Bowl. No one's asking why. The, you know, the NBA is putting him front and center in their 75th anniversary celebrations, even though there's a number of, you know, players who probably contributed more to the legacy of the NBA and been better players who are all still alive. No, that's fine. But Deshaun Watson, no, you can't. That doesn't sit with us. Yeah. You know, and I'm not laughing at the the potential of sexual abuse happening. I'm, you know, I'm laughing at your, I guess, your your idea that and I think outlook. you are correct in in the sense that it, it probably will happen again. But getting to that then, if if you think it's gonna continue to happen, then at some point, doesn't there have to be this big grandstand of disapproval and outrage? So maybe this is not warranted in the sense that where was this previously, but maybe it's just of a matter of it has to eventually happen and Watson might be the guy who who's going to take it and a change might eventually be made from it. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent right. And if this is the moment where things start to change then great, then I'll retract the comments that I've just made in a sense. And I can understand why this gets a little bit more attention because he's a quarterback because he just signed, you know, gets suspended and then without playing another down comes back and signs the biggest contract in the history of the NFL in terms of what he's earning per year. And, and, and it's fully guaranteed, and they've also manipulated the contract so that if he's suspended next season, it has very little impact on his overall earnings. I can understand all of that bit as to why it just does not sit well with the general public. It's just funny to me that you know there's there's this exodus from you know Browns fans supposedly on social media. There's people in the media. Look, I, and I kind of said this. Hey, this is a chance to follow us on Twitter or Instagram if you're not already doing so. Look for the Big Chill Podcast, but. 
there's people I find people in, in the media coverage who are saying that the Browns are amoral. And yet, look, if you're that opposed to what the NFL does, who it employs and what it stands for, and you're in the media making money, your career is coming from covering the NFL, you're part of the problem. Like you need to be realistic about that. If you think that the Browns and Deshaun Watson are the only issue within the NFL, if you're not someone who's working for ESPN or Fox or whoever it is, who is literally spending almost all of their time talking about how uncomfortable it is that these that a sizable chunk of the NFL has had serious accusations or sometimes actual sort of convictions in terms of how they've treated women, then to decide that I'll, I'm going to be able to really grandstand on this one because it's the Cleveland Browns, which is how it sort of feels to a degree. Um, I, that, that I don't like. And also, I mean, the other thing that's uncomfortable, right, is this comes on the back of Calvin Ridley getting, at, well, let's say, looks like his suspension will be as serious as Deshaun Watson's was for betting on a game when he was, well, betting on a series of games when he was away from t- the teams and, you know, players with m- sort of drug, minor drug charges get, you know, s- stricter suspensions than if you beat your wife up. I think that's the inconsistency in the suspensions and the punishment that are handed out by the NFL are also another issue for them. It's, you know, crazy that you're better off, you know, that getting caught smoking weed is considered worse than, you know, seriously harming a woman. But it is what it is. It's not new. And it seems to me as if some people are just having their, it's as if they've just started to realize this. Yeah, and, and I think moving past that a little bit, so for those who haven't heard, Sean Watson went to the Browns for uh, a first-round pick for the next three years as well as a 2023 third-round pick and a fourth-round pick. So I guess in terms of the teams now, do you think this was a win-win? It's definitely a win for the Texans. I cannot believe that they got as much as they did for him. I mean, the question that has to be asked, how much would he have been worth if he hadn't had this hanging over his head? Is he worth like seven first round picks if he's not suspended for a year and has his future in doubt? I guess that's the thing that I can't quite wrap my head around. For the Browns, I sort of understand the move in terms of the fact that Baker Mayfield was not the quarterback that was going to win them the Super Bowl. They have a very good squad. They do feel as if they're sort of built to win now. And if you're going to do that, you need a quarterback who can get you over the line. But I'd, I don't know. It feels like they overpaid for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they overpaid for him a little bit. Considering now when you look at a lot of these good teams in the NFL and the teams that are making the playoffs, you have to have a lot of your players on rookie contracts. You need to have good players that are making valuable contributions to your team that are on rookie contracts and losing your first round pick for the next three years is going to severely limit the amount of direct impact type of players you can get. And that's not saying, you know, you have some great drafts and maybe you get a few good second rounders, but you're losing a lot of value there. That's going to make your team great. And then, and on top of that, that they seem to just be, losing players left and right. I mean, so you have obviously Mayfield who will be gone, but then you also have Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham both gone in this year. So they're losing a lot of their talent around Deshaun Watson. So it's, it's, it's a questionable move for the Browns. I guess at some point you had to move on from Baker Mayfield and this is their way of moving on and getting someone that they at least know 
is a elite level QB than having to go somewhere in the draft and try and get lucky again. So in that regard, I think it's a smart move, but you're giving up a lot. Well, they brought in Amari Cooper, right? So they're kind of balancing some of their talent losses there. And hey, Antonio Brown has come out and said that he wants to play for the Browns. So they could really just steer into the controversy and bring him in. I guess the interesting thing to talk about from the Browns perspective is the handling of the Baker Mayfield situation and also how Baker Mayfield handled it himself, which feels like both of the sides of that particular instance totally overplayed their hands. That feels was a like, lose-lose yeah. <laughs> situation. <laughs> and, and ultimately the real loser out of that is Baker Mayfield. And I do feel sorry for him. I mean, time and time again, we see these instances where as an NFL player, you get asked to kind of play through the pain and to delay surgery and, and not sit out. And then they are, there are so often these instances where you kind of lose. Like, I think if Baker Mayfield earlier in the season had just said, hey, my shoulder's so bad, I can't play. I need to have an operation on it. And then they'd played Case Keenum for the remainder of the year. And Case Keenum had just been Case Keenum. I think the Browns get to the end of the season and say, Baker Mayfield's got one year left on his contract. Let's see what he does. Whereas because he played through the pain, which clearly impacted his performance, not to say that he's been amazing outside of that period of being injured, but if he just hadn't done that, I think, you know, he's probably sitting in that situation and thinking he sort of sacrificed and put himself at risk and has probably damaged his overall reputation within the NFL through those performances. And the team has shown zero appreciation for that fact. And it's a tough one because it's, it's a cutthroat league and, and the Browns, I guess, shouldn't be expected to in to will willing, willfully make their team worse than it could be because they feel like they owe Baker Mayfield something, but they kind of owed Baker Mayfield something for what he was, what he did over the course of last season. Yeah. And for me, I think the real concern now is this might be the end of the progressive commercials. And that's going to be really sad for me because he was a phenomenal <laughs> I think commercial actor. Frank, so. I think that ship sailed. I think. Yeah. That's, and hey, we're getting, that, that's, we're getting that's the real loss here. We're getting Matthew Stafford commercials now. I don't know if I you know. not as personable. But I mean, no. I guess the other question here then is where does Mayfield go? And one of the possible landing spots was the Colts. But spoiler alert, the Colts just got Matt Ryan from a third round pick. So, you know, you look at other potential landing spots. And the one that's interesting the most to me is kind of the most comparable QB that he is in the sense of Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. Not that he's as good as Russell Wilson, but I think their style of play, the fact that they're both shorter QBs, can scramble a little bit, make plays with their feet, and you know that kind of aspect of play is very similar. And Baker Mayfield has said that you know he did model a lot of his game out of Russell Wilson, so that would be interesting to see if they try and replace Russell Wilson with the B version, with the with the Walmart version of Russell Wilson that is Baker Mayfield. So that I don't know how that's going to work out for the Seahawks. Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. It's difficult to see where his landing spots, potential landing spots could be and and they are quickly slipping away. I mean, I kind of track those from a different side of it, which is where is where could Jimmy Garoppolo possibly end up? And it seems in the similar situation where it also there are fewer and fewer viable candidates for any trade there from a Niners perspective. I think he's going to end up in the huddle of the San Francisco 49ers in week one, Eddie. That's where he's ending up. (laughs) 
I don't think he'll be in the huddle. Uh, if you want to tell me he's on the sidelines, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out just because they might get to a point where they realize there's just no point in trading him or cutting him. But I think they need the cap space is ultimately. So I think you'll get, you know, I, they need the cap space for a little bit of flexibility there. But yeah, I don't know if you're Baker Mayfield and you go back, what, 18 months, two years ago, this almost seems like an unimaginable situation. I mean, we're just over a year removed from them being in the playoffs and nearly beating the Kansas City Chiefs in a playoff game. And, and so to go from that to, I mean, not to be dramatic, but his NFL career could kind of legitimately be over at this point. Yeah. And then that was not the only big trades. The the other big one being Devontae Adams leaving the Packers after Aaron Rodgers decided to stay and being traded to the Raiders for a first and a second round pick. Was this a win-win, Eddie? I mean, it's definitely not a win for the Packers. It's a huge win for the Raiders in terms of, I mean, their division. I mean, we spoke about it on, you know, one of the last episodes was just, it's an arms race in their division. The AFC West just looks incredible now, at least on paper. You never know how things are going to play out in in reality. But for the Raiders, it's a huge win, obviously, too, in the sense of being able to reunite. I think it's always an advantage. We kind of saw that this year with the Bengals. But when you do have a quarterback and a wide receiver who played together in college, I think that's always advantageous from a relationship and understanding standpoint. And they Go have that. State Bulldogs. Yeah, with Carr and, and uh, Adams, they're able to do that. I, I, from the Packers perspective, I mean, he just wanted to leave, right? I mean, the Packers are claiming all, all the sources say that basically the contract that he was offered by the Raiders, they offered him an identical contract with the Packers. And that was zero in five year, 141 million is what he ended up signing with the Raiders. I mean, he's basically getting paid like a quarterback pretty much. And, uh, and he had no interest supposedly in signing that with the Packers. So you had to get rid of him at that point. I mean, the, the difficult thing to wrap our your head around at this moment is how involved was Aaron Rodgers in this? Did Aaron Rodgers know this was going to happen before he decided to come back and sign his new deal? Did Aaron Rodgers kind of give it the okay for the trading of Adams? You'd have to say based on his silence that, and just the fact that you know they, you would assume that they consulted with him before making any major decision like this. All of that seems weird because... Aaron Rodgers has kind of spent the last 12 months, you know, they did that like that last dance, the like MJ Pippin post where everyone thought that this was the sign that neither one of them would ever return to the Packers after the end of this season. Just all seems really weird. And again, kind of points towards Aaron Rodgers, maybe not being a great teammate. Yeah. I don't know what this says about the relationship between Rodgers and Adams because as you mentioned, it did seem that they were close and good teammates, but the fact that Rogers would come back and then Adams would leave with the ability to sign that same contract makes me think otherwise. <laughs> the, the only issue I have with this is I think on the front of it, it's a win for the Raiders in the sense that again, they're getting top three wide receiver in the league right now. The downside is what you mentioned about he's getting paid like a quarterback. That is a lot of money for a wide receiver, a position that they often get injured. 
the turnover sometimes is not the greatest. I mean, look at a receiver like Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas was going to be the next great wide receiver. And he has struggled these past, what, two seasons now in staying healthy and being productive. So you never really know with a receiver. There, It's almost kind of like a lesser version of a running back at this point now where there's so much just mix and match and plug and play with the receiver that that deal is just such a large amount of money. And five years is a lot for a wide receiver, especially one who's already been in a league for a long amount of time. So I think at least in the next year or two, it's a great deal for the Raiders, but to be determined if on year three, four and five, this is still a great deal. Yeah. I mean, I never know NFL contracts, right? They're so they're worth, they're not even worth the paper they're written on a lot of the times because I mean, yes, the question is always about guaranteed money, but then they can also sort of front load those contracts with how the signing bonuses work in terms of the flexibility it gives them from a cap perspective later on in the deal. And then you also have a situation where, you know, what clauses do they have to get out of the contract? Even if he stays, you get you kind of pressure a player into restructuring their deal so that it's more cap friendly. You know, there's all these things where I just, we see the big numbers get reported and and that's just an agent trying to kind of pump up the work that they've done. And I'm never certain. I mean, we saw this just Juju Smith-Schuster, right, who's just signed with the Chiefs. And I think the deal was reported to be $7.5 million or something per year. And then basically it works out that it's about $3 million a year or even slightly less. And the rest is just like all a lot incentive of based. Yeah, a lot of weird incentives. <laughs> yeah, that he'll just never get. But from his agent's perspective, they just get to plaster it all over the news that, hey, we got Juju Smith-Schuster to sign a, a one-year deal with the with the Chiefs for $7 million a year. And that's the bit. You know, people can lose their minds over NFL contracts when they the reality is the player will never probably see that money. And if the team really wants to get out of the deal, they probably can. So, I, I don't know. It seems like a ton of money. And they could, it feels like they will have overpaid within the wide receiver market. But at the same time, if, if the Raiders want to be relevant in their current form in this, this season and in the division that they're in, they kind of got forced into making moves like this. I guess the other big wide receiver signing is the Jaguars who obviously want to give help to Trevor Lawrence, but may have slightly overpaid with, paying Christian Kirk as the third highest wide receiver in the NFL currently. Yeah, For those who don't like even the... know who we're talking about, he was a receiver with the Cardinals. Yeah, he was what there. <laughs> he was their deep he was the deep threat with the Cardinals, basically. Yeah. Their big play wide receiver and they're paying him like he's the, can be a number one wide receiver and obviously not only a number one wide receiver but one of the very best in the league. It just it feels difficult because it just seems like the bad, the teams that are bad in the NFL just make bad decisions year in year out. And he might maybe he'll be decent, but I doubt he'll live up to the just sort of justify the amount of money that they're spending on him. But it just seems so, like teams get desperate and then they want to make moves so that it looks like they're making moves. And then this is going to be an albatross that they might have to deal with for the next couple of seasons. So this is, will be his fifth year in the league. Um, he has yet to have over a thousand yards receiving and his highest touchdown output was six. The, the other downside about that is he has yet to be able to play a full season. (laughs) Um, so he, it's, 
it's a very strange signing. And you're right. I think this just shows that teams that don't know what they're doing still continue to not know what they're doing. And then it's, you know, I don't get why people can't understand why teams that are constantly there are still there. Like look at the Steelers, you know, I bash the Steelers a lot and you look at their roster level and it doesn't look great, but for some reason they are making moves that maybe don't look great on paper, but are putting out a team that is competitive and is making the playoffs. I mean, they did it again this year with a team that, you know, I looked on paper and I thought they were a three win team. So good organizations make good moves and know what they're doing and bad organizations just throw money at whatever without really thinking about it. Yeah, hundred percent. And I do feel like sometimes it's just teams trying to, you know, prove a point uh, that, you know, they, they're willing to spend money. They're trying to make their team better and you're kind of trying to appease your, your fan base in the process and, and ultimately it ends up being a big mistake. I mean, yeah, I guess the, I mean, the other notable look at the Giants. free agent signing away, right, was <laughs> was uh, Von Miller's huge contract he signed with the Buffalo Bills, although it seems like it's another instance where the contract looks huge on paper, but the deal itself will probably never be worth that amount uh, in the in Six the end. year, $114 million was what Von Miller signed for. Yeah, that is an interesting one. I mean... A lot of that has to be due to his playoff play. Went to the Rams that he had five sacks and five playoff games. So he had a great playoff and was constantly talked of. And he was always there making plays. So kudos to him. You know, he had a great postseason. He knew he had to produce if he wanted to get a big contract. And he did. And now he's going to be on another super competitive team who will definitely utilize his service as well. And I think it's, I think it's a great upgrade for the bills. Now they have a great secondary. Now they'll have a little better pass rush. They can clamp down on that secondary with the receivers and give quarterbacks even less time and less of a window to throw in. Yeah. And, and for people maybe who are unfamiliar with sort of what we're referring to, when we say that these NFL contracts, there's, you know, aren't worth what they always get reported. I guess in the case of Von Miller, for example, you look at, the total deal is worth just around 120 million. He's only guaranteed to get 52 and a half of that. So already, you know, over half of it is unguaranteed. He did get an $18 million signing bonus. So that bit he gets just from signing the contract, but then his guaranteed earnings over the next couple of seasons, it's only $1.1 million this season, $1.3 million the, uh, the season after. And then, a th- then, kind of a similar amount the following season, but with a $13.4 million bonus if he's on the roster. So you look from the Bills' perspective, maybe they think he's coming towards the end of his career. If they want to cut him in at the end of two years' time, they obviously get out of the vast majority of the contract that they've signed him to. So it's one of those things where the numbers that get reported are so huge, but the reality is, is a little bit different. So that's all the... NFL trades and signings I had marked down. Did you have any more that you wanted to bring up of interest? Not really. No, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, it will be interesting to see what uh, we mentioned Juju Smith Schuster. I guess there could be some interesting TikToks coming out of Kansas City between oh boy, the Mahomes yeah. family and, and, and Smith Schuster. God, wait, wait till they come together and, and crash TikTok with their collaborations. I, and I, you know, I guess too, we have the 
draft coming up next month. So we had all the combine and it seems every year now people are getting faster and stronger uh, with the more specialized training that they're doing outside of their university. So that was impressive to see some of the results. But did you see the Aiden Hutchinson? I believe it was 28 reps on the bench press with his coach seemingly <laughs> helping on every rep. <laughs> I thought that was really fun. The first time I watched that, I, I like just move away from the bench because all it's going to happen is even if he's not touching it, which he probably wasn't for almost all of them, it looks like he is helping him and it's only going to create this controversy. And I don't know why he just didn't step back and then come closer. If you know someone can do 28 reps, you don't need to be spotting him on rep three, four and five like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the issue, right? It shows a severe lack of confidence from the coach's perspective. And yeah, if, if you know, hey, he's going to be able to do comfortably at least 15, so I can relax until he gets to say, you know, 12, 13, and then I might start paying attention just in case. But yeah, the fact that from rep one, now I guess the argument you could spin is, say he has helped him significantly on a lot of those reps, the way to do it is to start in that position. And then you have the, he can have the defense that he has at the moment, which is that oh, he wasn't helping me. That's just the, the sort of technique he uses to spot. So I guess that's the the one thing you could say. It works from that perspective, but I don't know. I don't get why you would do it because it, it, all it's led to, I mean, I guess the good news is it led to more coverage of his pro day than you'd ever expect. Yeah, I mean, so for those who aren't aware of what we're talking about, definitely uh, go just search on YouTube, Aiden Hutchinson bench bench press from his pro day. But, you know, you make a good point. Not only now, I guess, is it important to have good form on the actual bench press. It's important to have a spotter who has proper form to make cheating look like not cheating and to make the attention of the bench press get even more. I wonder if that was a strategic move by that coach to attract more attention and potentially get a free rep or two out of it. Uh, from the the awkward thing because otherwise that is just the most aggressive spotting technique out there in America. I mean, he was practically pushing the air so hard that it was making the bar go up. It was it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we'll have to see how this ends up. I never. I feel like pro days or the combine go by, and aside from the fact that the Raiders just always try and draft the fastest guy in the based on their combine time, I don't know how much it really impacts someone's draft value. I know that the interviews and stuff are, are where teams really look into things, but I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of don't get why we continue with the combine. I mean, I understand they do it because they want to have a 12-month-a-year NFL college football coverage, and this is a good way of having – an actual activity take place that draws the attention of the media for a couple of days. But it seems like such an antiquated way of assessing a player's performance. Now with all the data that they have, as if a team is really looking at, you know, they have the ability to track people's top speeds and average speeds and distance covered and stuff at all times in every game. And you think they're going to look at a guy and be like, well, yeah, all right. So we saw his top speed in a game was, was, x but he ran x plus 20 in in his in his 40 in 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 a straight line in kind of perfect conditions so maybe he just we can bring that out of him in a game it seems really strange to me 
Yeah. And to me, it reminds me of if you're a student in school and all your main goal or outcome is to just get an A in the class and you don't care about what you learn, but you're just going to cram that information in to get hundreds on the exams. And the combine is just like the final exam where these athletes are training specifically for a 40 meter dash in no pads on artificial turf with certain spikes, you know, where that actual trans one, that translation out into the real game isn't a a one-to-one translation, but two, as soon as they're done training for it, they kind of just forget about it let that training go. And they're probably naturally getting slower once the actual season starts. So it's just like training for a very specific thing just to get that outcome and then not having it actually translate to further success when they actually play. So it, it, you're right. It is a little antiquated in that sense. It's fun to watch though. I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. I enjoy seeing people at their peak performance and what their output is. I think it's kind of neat. It's interesting. I still feel like a little bit like the, you know, Pro Bowl, it feels like a missed opportunity to maybe do something a little bit more uh, sort of exciting. Like it feels like people could show off their skills in a better way than just running, you know, across the field and catching the ball six times. Or so like playing sprint. tag or something? I mean, <laughs> obviously no one wants to get hurt, but it just feels like you could be a little bit, I don't know, even if they were just testing guys' reaction times or, you know, like just more creative ways of of showing off the athleticism and the skills of NFL players. It feels feels like they could show us things that we sort of don't already know, which is, oh, that guy is really fast. You know, like I kind of, oh, he's, he's three-tenths of a second faster than I thought he was going to be. There's, it doesn't, that bit never really blows my mind. I mean, we've now got to the point, like, look, there are very, very big guys who are very, very fast for their size. It is impressive to see. But then I know each year that there are going to be people who fall into that category. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it will ever radically change. But any other, uh, you know, overall, it's been actually kind of a fairly quiet week in the world of sports. We've been dealing with so much of the unfolding drama in with Ukraine and Chelsea and all of the sanctions and how that could impact European football. And then this was a sort of quieter weekend on that front. I mean, you had El Clasico in in Spain with Barcelona maybe showing some signs of life with a convincing victory over Real Madrid, but you had an FA Cup weekend where everything went to form, and for the most part, it wasn't exactly... And PSG lost to Monaco, I guess, which is also convincingly, which they're just following the classic PSG game plan, which is be totally dominant up until the middle of February, get knocked out of Europe and then go on holiday <laughs> for the remainder of the season. I mean, it just yeah. it feels it's getting predictable. feels like Groundhog Day with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess we did have the conclusion of the Champions League round and then the new draw come out. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the big discussion, obviously, from that Champions League round was PSG getting knocked out uh, by Real Madrid and then also Manchester United's really dismal display against Atletico Madrid last week where they showed very little fight and never really looked like scoring having gone one nil down and sort of towards the end of the first half, just a second half. I think it's just weird as 
for people you know our age if you were born in the sort of mid to late 80s or early 90s you grew up with this idea that you Manchester United weren't always going to win but just that Sir Alex Ferguson era you always knew that in the second half or particularly late in game they were going to create chances and you were just going to be under tremendous pressure if you were winning I mean and obviously some of that there is a little bit of a myth that was built up about that in terms of what got referred to as Fergie time and that you know if Manchester United were losing and you expected there to be three minutes of injury time, and there was going to be five minutes of injury time, stuff like that. But you did just always expect, A, you expected them to score a late goal, but B, in the very least, you expected them to just put uh, the opposition under a lot of pressure. And then this is just watching a Manchester United team that seemed like it had no fight in it and kind of just went through the motions for the sec- in a second half in what was, for them, a really big match because doesn't look like they're going to get the Champions League through the league itself. So their only hope of doing that was actually as slim as it was, was winning the Champions League itself. Yeah, I think the only fight that United put up was outside the stadium, and specifically Marcus Rashford. If if, if I'm remembering the incident correctly, after after their loss, he uh, had some words for some fans. <laughs> yeah, and look, it's understandable. I mean, uh, Marcus Rashford, I'm not entirely certain what's happened to Marcus Rashford this season and it's concerning particularly obviously as an England fan because he seems to be a player of such great potential and it does seem as if his career is kind of falling by the wayside and there have been examples I mean you know if you just look back through Manchester United in recent seasons you've had players like say Danny Welbeck or uh, even Jesse Lingard you know players who 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 thought that they were going to be you know go on to huge careers and then you know he feels like he I mean the the closest parallels in some respects he feels like he might be falling into the category of say someone like Daniel Sturridge or Danny Welbeck where earlier in their career playing for quite big teams and showing some promise and getting England caps and you know scoring the odd occasional big goal and then just sort of sink into mediocrity hopefully he can He's still so young that hopefully he can get back on track before it's too late. But I can understand his levels of frustration because he is a little bit of a whipping boy for Manchester United fans and and England fans and just the general public. And I can see why he might feel as if he's unfairly targeted at times. Yeah, so out of the the next round, which would be the quarterfinals, right? Yeah. Yeah. What... What matchup uh, is intriguing you? Chelsea, Real Madrid? Yeah, I mean, that's the only really big clash, really. Um, you know, Bayern Munich and Liverpool will be delighted with the draws that they've been handed with Bayern playing Villarreal and, and Liverpool playing Benfica. I think they'd both feel as if, if you get to the Champions League, with the utmost respect to both of those teams, but if you get to the Champions League and that's who your opposition is, you'd be delighted. They would have taken that every single time if they've been offered it at the beginning of the season. And then even Manchester City, I mean, Atletico Madrid are difficult to handle. And you know that with Diego Simeone, he's, you know, love him or hate him. And, you know, people leveling, you know, kind of accusing him of kind of almost playing anti-football and that they're, they, they embrace the dark arts of football in terms of how they play. And that they're dirty and they try and nice, you know, nice take, Hogwarts reference, Eddie. <laughs> take advantage of all of the, you know, loopholes and and manipulate officials and, and kind of do everything that they can. 
it will be a tough match for Manchester City, but you'd still expect that over two legs that they just have too much firepower. And I mean, Atletico did not look great against Manchester United. The only reason they got through is because Manchester United themselves looked even worse. But I don't think City would have watched that, those two legs or anything that Atletico have done in La Liga this season and thought, uh-oh, that's a really tough Champions League quarterfinal tie. So in some respects, it's not the most fascinating uh, Champions League draw in the world. And Chelsea-Real Madrid is is the only real highlight. I guess the, the thing is it could be setting itself up for just an incredible semifinal because, I mean, I think, you know, arguably in City, Bayern, and Liverpool, those are probably the three best sides in Europe at the moment. And then, you know, I, I guess Chelsea and Real Madrid might be the two vying for that fourth spot. You, you could make a solid argument for that. So you do have the possibility of having the four best teams in Europe playing against each other in the semifinals, which doesn't often, ha- often happen. Now, I, we could say this, and then the semifinals end up being Atletico Madrid against Benfica, and it looks very different, but it could be at least set up. From a neutral's perspective, it could be set up for a really great semifinal. Yeah, and I mean, besides the absence of the star power of PSG, you know, you're really getting the the best teams still. So that would be that would be awesome, and hopefully that can happen, and we can get a little more coverage into that once it happens. But going from I guess the Champions League quarterfinals to the Sweet Sixteen currently for the NCAA bracket for college basketball, it's been a again pretty eventful. March Madness, as it's so aptly named, where after the first round, ESPN reported that there was no perfect brackets still out there. So a very crazy first round where you saw the number two seed Kentucky lose to St. Peter's, a school in New Jersey that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, I have to agree with you. I had never heard of St. Peter's before. But and you're now not they from are. New Jersey. <laughs> no, I mean it is worse for you, but it's still it's still shocking to you know follow college sports as much as I do, and and you know every year pay attention to March Madness. And yes, even when they are the smaller schools, they tend to make an appearance you know every couple of years. So to to not even have any sort of name recognition for if you had asked me, I mean you just said New Jersey, I I couldn't have told you they were in New Jersey. Now I don't even know. I would have guessed somewhere in kind of east coast area but i i mean i it's it's crazy to me in some respects to have a team in the sweet 16 where i just literally know absolutely nothing about the school and i guess eddie you'd be happy in me reporting that our big chill podcast group you are the current leader and you pretty much have the the best line to the championship you have the max amount of points available and there's only a few other people i think that have a legitimate chance to catch you at this point when we're only at the sweet 16, which is, which is pretty intense. I mean, a lot of people had picked uh, Arizona to win it all, which you also have. So I think that's going to rule out the chance of a lot of other people being able to catch you. There's a few that have Gonzaga and Villanova, but for the most part, the majority of our group picked Arizona. So you're looking pretty good in that respect. Much better than I am sitting in, I think, about fifth to last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I feel pretty pleased. I managed, I mean, it's one of those things, obviously, I didn't have, I didn't pick any of these major upsets, but I, I got lucky enough in that I didn't have any of them going deep enough to kill my bracket. 
instantly. Um, but yeah, no, and, and I guess talking about that St. Peter's thing, I guess the question is, are upsets becoming more of a thing? It definitely feels to me as if the early round upsets are becoming more common. And I probably should have looked this up from a statistical standpoint before we got into this discussion. But I mean, the only thing I do know is that St. Peter's have become only the third 15 seed to ever make the Sweet 16. And the two previous occasions are both within the last 10 years. And the last time it happened was last year. So, you know, you had it with Florida Gulf Coast in 2013 with uh, Oral Roberts last year and now St. So I guess it's it's one of those things where are are we entering a new, is, is March Madness getting even madder in some ways and that upsets are, are common, more commonplace than they felt like they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, and, and I'll pull the the um old sports guy and say that I think a lot of it is due to the one and done where now you have these teams that are small conference teams that have players that aren't one and done it and are staying their entire career. So you have a team made up of a lot of seniors or a team that's just played with each other for two, three years and know each other so well and can rely on each other playing these big teams like a Kentucky, which is a notorious one and done university where one player has a bad game and then, you know, the dynamic just isn't there to, okay, now who do we go to? What can we set up? What's plan B, plan C? Because we've never had plan B or plan C because we've only played 22 games together, you know? So I think, I think you will see it more and more because of that. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I think just the fact now with technology and you have more video and analysis that you can do where 20 years ago, a team like St. Peter's might not have had, the information available about Kentucky, but now they have video analytics, everything you could imagine to figure out the best way to attack a team like Kentucky. So I, I think you are going to see more and more as, as, as we keep going here. No, I think that's a fair point. I and mean, it's a really good point as to why it's, it's becoming more common. I think the other element too, a little bit is just the popularity of the three. And it's just, if one team is either really hot or if the other team just can't make a three and they, again, it kind of goes back to your idea. They don't have a plan B, you know, you'll watch this, these college games where teams are just bricking every three and they just keep going. Cause that's the thing that they know how to do. There's, I mean, there's only one game where I really watched so far where I felt like a team significantly changed its approach based on what the opposition was doing. But for the most part, it just seems like these teams kind of just go into it and going, yep, this is how we play. And if it works, it works. And if not, we're screwed. So anything in a non-sporting capacity? I mean, I guess actually just to finish off the sports news, I suppose, worth two notable things that happened this weekend. France were able to win the Grand Slam in the Six Nations. So they won every match that they played this year in the Six Nations. Uh, They beat England on Saturday in Paris to win their first Grand Slam since 2010, I think it is. I think they actually hadn't, I'm not even, not even, maybe not, hadn't won the Six Nations itself since 2010. And then the other talking point was Italy coming up with a dramatic last minute win against Wales, which was, talk about real upsets, uh, was a real shocker. First time they had won away in Wales. And they, and I mean, they had a long, long losing 
run going in the Six Nations and with a lot of criticism and, and pressure on them as to whether or not there should be some kind of promotion or relegation within the Six Nations or whether or not having Italy take part is just sort of a joke based on the fact that they lose almost every game. They put up a, a really good performance and, and for anyone who has any interest in rugby, a really great try at the end to, to win it against Wales really in the dying seconds. So, uh, some interesting. And then in cricket, as you know, much to my frustration that I was talking about over the weekend, but England had yet another draw in the West Indies in the second test in Barbados. And, but the notable achievement there was Carlos Brathwaite, the West Indies captain who played all, but played in all, but, uh, 18 of the overs sorry Craig Brathwaite I should say Carlos Brathwaite is the remember the name all-rounder from the the World Cup a few years ago but Craig Brathwaite who then played in so, all but 18 18 of the overs over the over the course of the five days so we obviously spoke about cricket pretty extensively and how long a test match is but if you imagine it's five days of non-stop cricket and he played in he was only not on the on the field for about sort of you know, whatever that works out to two or 3% of those five days. So maybe when that announcement of remember the name for Brathwaite was said, it was just for all of that name in general, not one specific person, but anyone who holds that name. <laughs> but yeah, that is, that is a crazy, that is a crazy performance by him. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's the, he is very much breaking the mold in terms of the, and, and in a sense, it's relevant to the conversation we had with Jared Kimber, where, you know, he he mentioned Shivnarayan Chanderpaul, who's who was maybe one of the last players who kind of adopted that style of where it was not about necessarily scoring runs; it was just about not getting out. And Brathwaite has very much adopted that same approach, and you know, works with singles. He's not a big hitter; he's not you know really getting boundaries or scoring at any long rate, but quick rate. But he is frustrating teams, and I mean, England could just not get him out, and. The levels of concentration required to bat for that length of time—it's—it's it's pretty incredible to watch. But away from the uh, away from sports, any food or popular culture or anything like that—that's caught your eye over the past few days. No, not in a food or pop culture, but sticking with sports. I know we don't discuss hockey very much, but uh, Alex Ovechkin just passed. Yarma Yager for third all-time in goals, and now he's only behind Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky. And as of right now, um, he's about a little over a hundred and he's 127 goals behind Gretzky, uh, with a little left in the season. So if he keeps on the pace he's on at this season, he'll be around 113 goals behind Gretzky for the all-time record. And, you know, he's averaging the last three seasons besides that 2021 pandemic season, he's averaging 50 goals a season. So you'd think even if he averaged 40 with four good seasons, three good seasons at 40, he could break Wayne Gretzky's record, which is insane to think. And he's actually getting better with age. I mean, he's his scoring outputs are are so high for someone who's currently 36, which I guess is the caveat here is saying he only needs three seasons of 40 goals. He's at 36 and, you know, injuries 
start to pile up as you get older and production will eventually decline. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that this isn't getting as much coverage as it is where he's probably catching uh, without question, the greatest hockey player of all time. And some like to argue if you were to do like a sport to sport comparison, Gretzky is the greatest of his sport of all time compared to other sports greats where he's such a standout in his sport, you know, compared to if you were to do the football one and say, Tom Brady, there are other people that you can put up there close to Tom Brady or the Michael Jordan, LeBron James, that aspect where everyone knows Wayne Gretzky is the best hockey player of all time. So it's, it's impressive and it's, it's been fun to watch and he is just a machine. Yeah. I mean, the coverage is probably being hurt by the fact that you have also, you know, just had LeBron James move into second in the all time NBA points scorer. So in a sense, that's, you know, the more popular league, the more well-known player achieving kind of doing almost a similar thing, right? It kind of takes over that debate of, oh, will he play for long enough to surpass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? And also at the same time, then, you know, where does that, how do you assess, where do these statistical achievements, how do they impact the assessment of how good of a player, how good is a player in terms of the greatest of all time? Which, you know, I, I find it, you'd like to call yourself the stats man, right? I, I think the, the conversation is obviously always more complicated than, especially as the game changes from one era to an, I think within eras, it's kind of easy to do the stats comparison and, and, and draw straight lines between them. I think it's really difficult when you have to add that additional context and nuance into the stats when you're trying to say, well, how does it compare scoring, you know, the number of goals that Gretzky did in, in say the eighties versus the number of goals that Ovechkin scoring now. I'm certainly not in a position to make that, to add that context, but the same goes for LeBron James and trying to determine how impressive it is. Is it for him to score as many points now or to have the longevity that he's had now, thanks to the science and the nutrition and just the, the, you know, the overall level of care that NBA players have versus, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar playing for the length of time he did, you know, decades ago. Yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, but the other thing about Wayne Gretzky that made him so great is, you know, Ovechkin is what, let's say 120 goals behind him all time, but his total points is uh, just under 1400 points. Whereas Wayne Gretzky's total points is like 2,800. So it's, it's insane to think that he might be as close in goals, but then when you look at the overall player that Wayne Gretzky was, he almost, you know, has just as many assists and just shows how, how, amazing of a player he was compared to Ovechkin, who's a great player, but is a little one dimensional in that he's a scorer and not much of, of a setup man. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's just I impressive find it, how great Wayne Gretzky was. <laughs> I find it hard, right? Because I just, and this is not a knock on Gretzky or his, or labeling him the greatest of all time or anything, but he also, there's that, there feels like there's that sweet spot of having been a professional athlete in the sort of when sports became, when just, sports media coverage exploded and the internet started to become a thing or, you know, kind of global coverage and recognition of sports started to happen that you could kind of cement yourself as the greatest of all time. And I almost don't know if, like, I don't know if fundamentally anyone will truly surpass Michael Jordan in terms of being the greatest of all time. And then kind of feels the same way about Gretzky. And, you know, we've had the discussion on previous podcast episodes where in some respects that feels wrong because, 
athletes are constantly getting better and the sports themselves there, you know, the technique is, is, is always improving and people are learning from what people have done in the past. So it seems almost inconceivable to think that no one will ever be better than this certain person. But it does seem like there was this, this real sweet spot of, Hey, if you were very, very good at sports right then when there was just coverage was starting to peak a little bit, you really put yourself in a prime spot to put yourself on top of the mountain and, and make it very hard to be knocked off. Yeah. And then also you don't have that constant day in day out scrutiny of having to be compared to other people, you know, so, you know, maybe it doesn't affect LeBron James, maybe it does, but at a point, everything he opens and everything he reads about himself is a comparison to how he is versus Michael Jordan. And I understand Michael Jordan had that in the newspapers and things like that, but it's not as if Michael Jordan had Instagram where any post he put up, there'd be at least 7,000 comments saying you're not the goat of all time. You know, you're not let's, the goat. You're let's not the be real. Even if, even if Michael Jordan was playing in the modern era, I don't think he'd have Instagram. Like I cannot imagine a scenario where Michael Jordan during his playing career has any social media. I think Aside he has from, to. I mean, aside from the idea that like Nike and Air Jordan would have had some sort of social media, and so there would have been Air Jordan posts, I think he has zero social media. He just does. It seems out totally out of character for him. I think he would have just been. I play focus on my sport, and I don't do any of that other stuff. Doesn't do any of that other stuff like film a Space Jam movie with Looney Tunes or. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically, that was during his retirement, right? And that was right when he was coming back, I think, that they filmed that. But but yeah, no, I, I mean, look, obviously, he he led the way in terms of developing off-the-court uh, brands and presence. That's why he – it's part of the reason why he's built the image that he has and is why he's become as wealthy as he has done. But I feel like social media would have been – I mean, it's, it's impossible to say, right, because – I, I mean, I have this conversation almost to a degree with like, I don't know, my parents who, I don't know, my mother has an Instagram account or something. My dad, my dad, I think would probably say there's no way he would have ever had a social media account. He can't imagine a world in which he would have done. And it's just because, well, you grew up in a time when it obviously didn't exist. So for you to try and imagine your childhood or 20s or 30s using a technology that has absolutely no link to what you were doing then it's pretty difficult but maybe michael jordan would have had a different character i don't know it just seems to me on the face of it that he would have just been pretty dismissive of the idea of trying to interact with directly with the general public in any way probably would have had a poker stars account though (laughs) for sure (laughs) probably just found him grinding away on tables on poker stars or party party poker or something at like four in the morning before a game and people would have been discussing that like i just i just played heads up texas hold'em against michael jordan for three million dollars and the nba finals game tips off in two hours well anything else from the week no i think that about wraps it up Looking forward to the next round of the NCAA tournament. Hopefully Arizona can keep it going. Got a nice overtime win against TCU the other day. So hopefully their games of grinding it out are over and they can get a few easy wins and coast into the final four. That'd be nice. 
Tucson would yeah. be a buzz. <laughs> yeah. What a what a what a wonderful thought for most of our listeners. But and and speak and look if do another final reminder, particularly if you're a new listener, I know we would have gained quite a few, well have gained quite a few over the some of the interviews we've done in recent weeks. But you know, if you are listening to this, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, uh, follow us on social media, and and also uh, recommend the podcast to a friend. It's the easiest way. If you enjoy it, maybe someone else, you know, will do. And it's you know, it's kind of paying us back for for some of the content, I guess. But yeah. All right. Well, I guess I'll talk to you later, Eddie. See you. Cheerio.